you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is the psalm we'll be looking at this morning. It is, in essence, the quintessential psalm of faith. And one that, as we read even a moment ago, as Christ is hanging on the cross and trusting, even in that moment, in the will and in the goodness of His Father, He is reflecting on, um, meditating on, and taking upon his own lips the words uh, of this psalm as an expression of his own trust uh, in the Father. It's a longer psalm, but we'll read uh, the whole psalm as we uh, begin our time uh, together this morning. Uh, You can see as well, this is another psalm of David. And uh, we will begin by reading together uh, verse 1 down to the end, verse 24. So David is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, beginning in verse 1, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. Faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in You, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in Your hand. 
Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make Your face shine on Your servant. Save me in Your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame. For I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is Your goodness which You have stored up for those who fear You and worked for those who take refuge in You in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of Your presence, You hide them in the plots of men. You store them in Your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, For He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. and Let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, your servant David, we know from your word, was a man of many afflictions. He had received from you great promises. He had received a covenant from you. And yet, he had many enemies. And he had many times in his life when he was on the run and when he was facing death itself. And yet, even in the midst of these dark hours, he continued to entrust himself to you and you showed yourself faithful to him. And here we see even at the end of the psalm, he, because of this, calls upon all of those who fear you, who know you, who love you, and who trust in you to continue in the same way, entrusting their very lives into your hands, even in the midst of afflictions. And as we've even read a moment ago from Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as He's suffering on the cross, He too is a man of many afflictions. And yet, even through His life, we see Your faithfulness. For even as He gives Himself over to the powers of death itself, You showed Yourself faithful in even giving Him victory over the grave which is a sign to all who would trust in Him that that same victory will be ours. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning as we consider the words of this psalm, we consider what it is to trust in You, uh, even in affliction. I pray, Lord, that You would strengthen our faith. I pray that You would grow us and cause us all the more to hope in Your goodness. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we look ahead for a moment, 
to next week's psalm, which is Psalm 32. We find there a psalm that contains one of the great passages from the Old Testament about the doctrine of justification. It is a psalm that, as we will look at next week, Lord willing, even the Apostle Paul quotes in the book of Romans when he is expounding upon this very doctrine, the doctrine of justification, teaching how a man is to be justified, how he is to be considered righteous before God. And as we know from the book of Romans and as well from elsewhere in Scripture, the necessary condition for justification is faith. We are justified before God not on the basis of works, not by any works we do, but by faith and faith alone. I think it's fitting then that before we come to Psalm 32, our psalm this morning is a psalm that is all about faith. It is a psalm that contains the vocabulary, the imagery, if you will, of faith. It is a psalm that reveals the nature of faith. It is a psalm that even later prophets like Jeremiah who endured himself very similar trials as King David did. This also is a psalm that he alludes to in his own life and in his own writings as an expression of his own faith. When he is being persecuted, when he's being pursued by enemies who seek to kill him because he's faithful to the Lord. Because he proclaims his word. And this is a psalm that even our Lord Jesus took upon his lips in his darkest hour on the cross when he entrusted his very own soul into the hands of the Father as he breathed his final breath. So this is a psalm that is for us a kind of schoolmaster. It's a, it's a tutor teaching us about the nature and the object and the strength of faith through the faith of King David. And so as we consider this psalm together this morning, I want us to focus especially on this doctrine, on the doctrine of saving faith. What it is and what does it do. Now, as we've just seen a moment ago from reading this, this is a longer psalm, so we're going to have to approach it from a broader point of view. But as we move through it, I want to give you three points in particular about faith. And the first is this. Faith hopes in God in the darkest hours. Faith Hopes in God in the darkest hours. It is one thing, of course, to say that you have faith in God when all things are going well. It is quite another when your faith is being tried by some kind of suffering. 
One of the truths that Jesus Himself teaches us in the parable of the sower and the seed is that there are many, many people who have had and who will have a kind of faith in the Gospel at least for a time. But the moment that some kind of tribulation comes, the moment that there is some sort of affliction that comes upon them in the world, their faith in that moment begins to wither away and bears no fruit and eventually just dies. But true faith hopes in God even in the darkest hours. Now, what is likely the background, the main background of this psalm is what we might say is one of King David's darkest hours in his own life. It was the time when he was on the run from Saul, saved the city of Keilah, and then he was subsequently betrayed by the very people, by the very city he had just saved. This was a time that is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and 24. David was at this time hiding from Saul in the forest of Hereth, which was in the land of Judah. He had, he had just returned to Judah from hiding out in Moab for a period of time, and even before that, hiding out in the caves of Adullam before that. So he's been on the run for quite some time, but now he's come back to Judah. He's still in hiding, though, in the forest of Hereth. While he's there, though, he hears a report about the Philistines. They are attacking this city called Keilah, which is not far away from the forest that he's hiding out in. It's literally in walking distance. You could probably get there in less than half a day. So this report comes to him that the Philistines have been warring against the city. And David, because he had a concern for and a love for his people, he wanted to fight for them. And so as a prophet, he asks the Lord. He says, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord then tells him to go. And so David takes his roughly four to 600 men that he had with him at the time to the city of Keilah, and he fights against the Philistines and he saves the city. Now, you would think that if you were just saved from an onslaught of these pagan Philistines who wanted nothing more than just to wipe you out completely, you would think that you'd be grateful once you were just saved from these enemies. But as the narrative continues, we find that David has now learned that Saul knows where he is. Probably some report came to him about what had happened at Keilah, and he's, he's now heard, Saul has learned that the man he hates the most, King David, is in the city of Keilah. And Saul has devised a plan now to besiege the city, to trap David inside of it, and then, of course, to kill him. 
This is likely what David is even referring to in Psalm 31, verse 21, when he blesses the Lord for showing steadfast love to him, he says, when he was in a besieged city. Now, when David gets word about this plan of Saul, he again seeks the Lord about what he's to do. And he asks, as he's inquiring of the Lord, he asks what is truly in the context a heart-wrenching question. A question that you don't expect to come given what he's just done for the city. He asked the Lord, will the men of Keilah surrender me and surrender my men into the hand of Saul. Something has gone terribly wrong. David and his men have come to save this city, but there is something about them. There's something about these inhabitants of the city that doesn't seem right. They are clearly not responding to David and his army with any kind of gratitude. They don't care, in effect, that they've been saved by the Philistines because now, even before David asked the question, he's thinking about it. Are these men about to betray me? Are they going to surrender me? And sure enough, when he asks the Lord this question, the Lord tells him, they will surrender you to Saul. This then forces him to leave the city and to go on the run again, where he then comes to the wilderness of Zeph. And then he is again betrayed by the Ziphites, and he eventually has to flee that wilderness And he makes his way to the wilderness of Maon, where he and his men camp on the side of this mountain that's in this wilderness called um, the Mountain of Maon. And in the narrative, it's it's in some places it's called the Rock, and later it's even called the Rock of Escape. And it's called this because while they were on that rock, while they were on that mountain hiding out from Saul, Saul finds out where they are and he pursues them yet again. But as Saul is is going up this rock, he's on the opposite side. David and his men are on one side of the rock, one side of the mountain, and Saul and his men are making their way up on the other side in pursuit. But as they're making their way up, Saul receives word that another one of his cities is being attacked. And when he hears that word, he has to stop his pursuit of David, and he turns and he goes back to to fight off those who are raiding the cities, and David escapes Hence, the mountain becomes known as the Rock of Escape. Now, it's this whole event in David's life that provides the background and language for Psalm 31. David prays to the Lord in verse 2 that the Lord would be His rock of refuge 
and strong fortress. And he prays this to the Lord because in verse 3, the Lord, he says, is His rock. Or He is His mountain. Using the same word that is used of the rock of Ma'on. The, the mountain of Ma'on. And he says that the Lord is His fortress. And He guides and He leads David. And He takes him, notice, out of the net His enemies have hidden for Him. In other words, he's praying to the Lord, Lord, be my rock because You are my rock. He's praying for the Lord to act in accordance with who He is. He's praying in the will of God. He knows that the Lord is His rock. He knows the Lord is His refuge. And so he's asking the Lord to continue to be His refuge. He is entrusting his life to the Lord and he was doing so in the midst of a time when he was betrayed on multiple occasions, when he was on the run, hiding out in forests, hiding out in various wildernesses, hiding out in different caves, and eventually on a mountain. He is trusting the Lord with his life even while his life hangs in the balance. It is in the midst of staring death in the face that David pins these words, into your hand I commit my spirit. And in the same way, roughly a thousand years later, of course, there's another king, David's Son who would endure similar but even greater trials. He would likewise come to a people for the purpose of saving them. Christ comes into the world, comes to the Jews first in order to save them. And then He would be betrayed by one of His close disciples. And he would likewise go to a rock or to a mountain. Only this time, the king would not flee to the mountain, but he would be taken there, carrying a cross. And the mountain would not be called the rock of escape. Rather, it would be called Golgotha, the place of a skull, the place of death. And the king would not barely escape death, but in fact would willingly give himself over to the power of death. And yet still, while Jesus is hanging on the cross and suffering the agony of a painful death and bearing the full weight of the wrath of God and being mocked and being ridiculed by the enemies who hated Him. Even in His darkest hour, when not even the sun, we are told, was giving its light, Jesus took upon His own lips the words of this psalm. And calling out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathes his last breath. 
Jesus entrusted Himself to the will of the Father even in and through the agony of the cross. And it is that example that He leaves for us to follow likewise. The Christian's call to have faith in the Lord is not a call to come to Him or to trust in Him when all is well. It includes that, no doubt, but it is much, much more than that. The Christian hopes in God even when the gates of hell appear to be prevailing. The Christian continues to entrust himself to the Word of the Lord and to His faithfulness even when sin and death appears to be winning and spreading and doing all of its damage that seems to be unstoppable. And of course, many of you know this. You, you know that you are to trust in Christ even when things are horrible, and you know this just by the facts of your own conversion. When you trusted in the Lord for the first time, it was not because your sin seemed weak and your will seemed strong and your righteousness was established. No, you trusted in the Lord when you had a clear understanding of the depravity of your own heart. It was when your eyes were able to see just how dark the darkness in your heart truly was. It was when you came to an understanding of the inescapability of sin's chains, of the evil of your deeds, and of the condemning wrath of God that stood against you. You trusted in the Lord when by the grace of God you came to recognize that you were a sinner falling rapidly into the pit of hell and the only thing that was left for you to do was to cry out to God for mercy. A moment of desperation, of seeing the fact that your sin was not something you could overcome. It was not something you could wash away yourself. It was not something that you could just make go away by reforming your deeds from here on out. Which, if you ever tried that, itself proved to be a fruitless endeavor. No, it was desperation. And it was a moment when you saw the gates of hell at your doorstep and you cried out to God for help and mercy. It was facing the reality of the darkness of your soul that caused you to turn to the Lord in faith. And then He made the light of His face 
shine brightly within your heart. And in the same way that your faith likely began, your faith must also continue to be exercised and grow. You must hope in God when you are reviled and persecuted. You must hope in God when you are sick and weary. You must hope in God when you lose a child or when there's conflict in your family or when there's a loss of employment. You must hope in God in whatever the afflictions or trials may be. You must hope in God when there is affliction and most especially when that affliction is present. Again, it is the easier thing to do to trust in the Lord when all is well. But the call to believe in Him is a call that assumes a cross is coming and a cross there will be to bear. Faith is that act of the will and of the mind whereby you relinquish all hope in yourself and in your works and in your wisdom and you depend solely upon God and God alone. But a second point that is worth looking at is that faith also hopes in God both for spiritual and physical salvation. Faith hopes in God both for spiritual and physical salvation. And we can see this aspect of faith particularly from verses 9 down to around verse 18. Now in this section, David begins by asking for the Lord to be gracious to him. And here, his request for grace in this beginning part of the section, his request for grace is related not directly to his physical enemies who are at this moment trying to kill him, but to his spiritual enemy which attempts to do the same. He speaks in verse 10 of his strength failing or stumbling because he says of my iniquity and his bones are wasting away. This is something that he again repeats in Psalm 32 when he speaks there of his unconfessed sin. Psalm 32 verse 3, for example, says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David's sin is itself an enemy that he needs rescuing from. It is his sin that brings death both to his soul and to his body. And of course, we know this from Genesis 3. We know that this is what sin does. It brings death, it spreads death into the whole world. And our own physical weaknesses, our dying, sick, ale bodies are the results of sin being in the world 
and sin being in us. And David here seeks the Lord's saving grace to save him from his sin. He has a spiritual enemy that is weakening the vigor of his own body. And he needs the Lord's grace to fight against this enemy. But then, after considering the enemy of his own sin, he goes on in verses 11 to 18 to speak about his physical adversaries, who are, of course, seeking his life. And he pleads to the Lord to be saved from them as well. He speaks here of becoming a reproach to his neighbors and an object of dread to his acquaintances in verse 11. Those who were supposed to be his friends, those who were supposed to be grateful for the good things he had done for them, became enemies to him. And in verses 12 to 13, they began scheming and plotting together against him. He says that he heard the whispering of many, terror on every side, he says. And this probably refers to the scheming of the men at Keilah and later the Ziphites in the wilderness of Zeph. He knew something was going on in this city. The response of these people to the work of salvation that he had brought to them when he conquered the Philistines on their behalf was not one of thankfulness. He's hearing whisperings. He's hearing betrayals and plotting and scheming going around. Terror on every side, he says. We find something similar to this even in the prophet Jeremiah's life. Because Jeremiah prophesied and faithfully proclaimed the word of the Lord, men also plotted and schemed against him. And Jeremiah in his life drew on David's words in Psalm 31 to describe his own situation of men plotting against him. He said in Jeremiah chapter 20, for example, in verse 10, he says, For I hear many whispering. Terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say all my close friends watching for my fall. These are all worthless men that David and Jeremiah faced. And both of them, both David and Jeremiah, looked to the Lord for salvation from all of these physical adversaries. And it is still the same for the Christian. The great emphasis, of course, in the New Testament is salvation from spiritual enemies. We trust in Christ to save us from the power of sin. We trust in Christ to give us victory over the dominion of Satan. We trust in Christ to bring us into His heavenly kingdom. But of course, 
What we also know from the New Testament is that the spiritual emphasis does not negate the reality of salvation from physical enemies as well. The Christian hopes in God for salvation also from wicked, worthless men. But he doesn't look for that salvation to come ultimately through a battle in his own lifetime or through the sword or through war. He looks for that salvation to come ultimately through the day of God's vengeance and the return of Christ when the Lord will return in judgment to strike down all of His enemies. And that is an important, a very important truth to bear in mind because it is that truth that provides for the Christian one of the grounds for loving his enemies now. It is the fact that vengeance belongs to the Lord that provides for the Christian that footing, that foundation upon which he can stand and confidently and rightfully love even his enemies. Vengeance belongs to God, and because it belongs to Him, it does not belong to us. What belongs to us, what is required of us, is to do good, even to our enemies. With the aim, of course, of either seeing that graciousness lead to their own conversion, that's what we pray for, that's what we hope for, or further confirming their judgment if they do not repent. Paul explains this logic like this in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Confirming him, in other words, further in his judgment if he does not repent. He says further, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christ came the first time to kill our spiritual enemies. Sin, death, and the power of Satan. And to those spiritual enemies, we also have a command to draw the sword of the Spirit with Him and to put to death all of those enemies. There is no mercy at all that is to be shown to the power of sin. There is no grace that is extended to the works of the flesh. You make war against it 
as it is your greatest enemy. But Christ also does not come to execute vengeance on physical enemies until His second coming. As of right now, the Lord is patient with those enemies. He is gracious towards them. And He even draws many of them, like ourselves, to Himself. And thus, it is likewise our call to be patient and to be gracious towards our enemies with the aim of drawing them to our Savior, Jesus Christ. David himself, we know, showed grace to the very man who was trying to kill him. The primary cause, the, the reason why he had been hiding out in the forest, hiding out in caves, hiding out in Gentile territories. Saul, who wanted to kill him. David even shows grace and mercy to him. And he does so because he trusted that the Lord Himself would fight for him. And in a similar way, because we are told that vengeance belongs to the Lord, we are to trust that the Lord Himself will be the one who fights against our enemies, and thus we are to do good to all, repaying evil with good. Thereby, as Paul says again, heaping burning coals on heads. Vengeance is in the hands of the Lord. But last of all, final point I want to make about faith this morning is that faith also remembers and celebrates God's goodness. Faith remembers and celebrates God's goodness. And this can be seen from verses 19 to 24. David begins this section in verse 19 by praising the abundance of God's goodness, which he says is seen in the fact that he protects his people from the plots of men. But then in the middle of this section in verses 21 and 22, David here looks back on his own life and remembers an occasion when God's goodness was shown to him even when his faith was wavering. And here again, he's probably thinking about that occasion when he was betrayed by the men of Keilah whom he had come to save. He says in verse 21, if you look with me there, he says, Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. And then he says, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. He had heard a report that Saul was coming. And he was alarmed. He feared the worst. He feared that the Lord had forgotten him. Possibly even forsaken him. 
He had been told by the Lord to go to Keilah to fight the Philistines, and now he finds himself in a trap surrounded by men seeking to kill him. Surrounded in a besieged city, and he wonders to himself, have I been cut off from the Lord's sight? He's wavering. But he says also in the psalm that despite his own wavering, despite trying to reconcile what the Lord had told him to do with the reality that death is now at his doorstep, despite the wavering, the Lord was still good to him. He says further, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. The Lord had not abandoned him, even though everything around him appeared to be that way. All of the things that he could observe with his own eyes. If he wants to take the the scientific spectacles for a moment and and look at things from what we might, uh, what sometimes we're told is a more objective approach, right? Everything he sees around him tells him that he has been forsaken. And yet, even though that appeared to be the case, he says the Lord was good to him. He did not abandon him. The Lord guided him through impossible trials, leading him through valleys, into mountains, into forests, through death, and ultimately to the throne. And David here is remembering that. He is remembering how God had been good to him. And faith, friends, must always do that very thing. Faith does not only look to the future. It doesn't just look ahead. It doesn't only hope in the things that are to come. It is strengthened also by looking backwards, by looking to the things that have happened in the past. How has the Lord before shown kindness to me? How has the Lord been good to me before? What are the ways that He has been faithful before? Faith looks to the past in order to understand and embrace more surely what is to come in the future. And this is what you must do as one who walks with the Lord. If you know Christ, you know Him because He has been good to you. At a bare minimum, you know Him as one who has saved you from your sin and by whose blood you have been justified before God. That's a bare minimum. If you walk with the Lord, that is clear evidence of God's goodness to you. But if you've walked with Him for any period of time, you can probably think back as well to moments when you were alarmed. 
when you were panicked, when you were anxious or wavering or grieved about something, and the Lord showed His goodness to you even in the midst of those dark seasons. They may be times of small acts of providence, or they may be much larger. I mean, I can't, you know, I've, I've been here nine years now, and I can never forget the many times where we have had just here tremendous needs, and I've got no clue how this is going to be met. We don't have the means, we can't do it. Lord, help. And the Lord has been good to meet even those needs. Those are, those are small, small acts of providence, but they're testimonies of His faithfulness. They're little ways in which you can look back and you can see, oh, the Lord was good here. The Lord was good here. David can look back at his life and he can say, when I escaped from the cave of Adullam, the Lord was good there. When I escaped from Keilah, the Lord was good there. When I, when I was on the other side of the rock of escape and Saul and his army turned back, the Lord was good there. He can look back on his life and see all of these many times when the Lord has been good to him. And of course, week after week, we are also called to look back to the past and remember God's goodness when we partake together of the Lord's Supper. Christ gave to us this very ordinance. He gave it to the church for much the same reason why He gave the Passover to the Old Covenant people. In Exodus chapter 12, when the Passover was instituted, Moses spoke of a day that would come when the people of Israel would be in the land of Canaan. I mean, and that, that's something that you always need to bear in mind. They're not even there yet. And yet they're instituting a festival, a Passover, that comes with the promise that they're going to be there. When you come into the land and you begin celebrating and observing the Passover feast, Moses speaks of a time when their children would begin asking, what do you mean by this service? What is this Passover about? Why do we do this? Why do we kill this, this lamb? Why do we put this blood over our doorpost? What does all of this mean? And the explanation that the parents were to give to the children was that the sacrifice of the Passover lamb was about the time when the Lord had passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. They were to tell their children, it is about God's works that He's done for our people in the past. And they were to look back at that day when God had showed His goodness to them by saving them from the Egyptians. And they were to look back so that they would know for every day moving forward that the Lord loved them and that He would continue to love them from that moment on. And the Lord's Supper 
is very similar. In it, we look back and we remember that Christ, our Passover Lamb, was slain. So that the judgment of God that we deserved, the judgment of death, would pass over us and fall on Him. And so that we, through that death, might be saved from our sins. We look back and we remember God's goodness to us at the cross where He reconciled us to Himself and cleansed us of our sins. And we look back by faith so that also by faith we might be strengthened to hope in the goodness of God that will be with us now and forevermore. You see, faith, friends, is not just some blind belief in things. You hear that sometimes, right? Well, faith is just believing in things without any reason to believe in them at all. That's not what faith is. That's the opposite of what faith is. It is not a blind belief that is contrary to reason. Faith is grounded in real history. It is grounded in the works that God has done in real places, at real times, and for real people like you and me. It is grounded in the One who is truth Himself. And because it is grounded in truth, because it is grounded in history and in God and in Christ, it is grounded in an unshakable foundation. And to use the language of Paul, it will never put you to shame. You can trust in the Lord even when the glasses that you're looking at the world through seem to be telling you that all the promises of God are failing. You can trust in the Lord in the darkest hours. And Paul says, that will never put you to shame. And so you are to believe in God, friends. You are to believe in His Christ, believe in His Word, believe in His promises, trust that He will save you from all your enemies, your spiritual enemies, as well as in the day of judgment, all physical enemies. You are to commit your spirit into His hands and not even death which is our darkest enemy, not even death itself will be able to overcome the goodness of the Lord. It is the goodness of the Lord that first saved us, that sustains us now, and that will bring us into eternal glory forever. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Well, Father, we see in Your Word all of these great examples of mighty 
faith. Men who had your word, had your promises, and who could cling to them because you would show yourself, prove yourself to be faithful. And of course, we see this most especially in our Lord Jesus as He's dying on the cross. And I pray, Lord, that all who are here would have this same faith. That even if it has begun small, even if our faith is as small as a mustard seed, Lord, that it would grow, that You would strengthen it by trials, by afflictions, by fire. You would do the work of a good God to grow our faith, grow our trust in You, and to prove Yourself even more faithful so that as we look to You, we will look to You with a great hope, knowing that You who have begun a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We ask all these things in His name.